You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Hey, Matt, let me tell you about a thing that I came across this week that I thought was interesting. All right, so... I am on social media as I am wont to do. And somebody posts a picture of basically the geography of the East Coast. And let me state for a fact that one, geography is stupid. I fucking hate knowing where places are and where rivers are and, you know, the relation of anything. Also, if you get me west of the Mississippi, I don't give a shit. Like there's square states, no creativity at all. Nobody lives there. Who gives a fuck? But I was astounded. And I, at first I thought this was some kind of like special map that was like somehow the relations were drawn differently or the orientation was somehow weird. I was astounded to learn that you are really not that far from Philadelphia. I, I assumed that Philadelphia was like farther in Pennsylvania instead of basically being right there on the coast. The bridge near my house is the bridge into Philadelphia. Astounding. Like, right there. Like, I work on the other side of the city. Like, I drive around Philadelphia, and I get to work. Pittsburgh is the one that's way in, but Philly is right next to Jersey. Should be illegal. At some point, New York and Philadelphia are just going to kind of grow together and eat New Jersey, and it's just going to be this... Like one mega city from New York all the way to Philly, I'm pretty sure. Well, you know, until the sea rise gets all of it. Yeah. But for now. (laughs) Hey, for now, it's all okay. Speaking of things that are okay, this is a surprise I have not told you yet. Guess what we got? Oh, we got a new backer? We do indeed. New backer. Yep. Let's welcome Matt McThorne, our new Jason Todd to your backer. Hey, McThorny, good to have you. And it's a good time to have a new Patreon backer because we have one of them joining us tonight. Let's say hello once again to the OG Dick Grayson backer, Josh Wheel. How's it going, Josh? Hola, doing well. Glad to hear it. And hey, we're getting right into the stories tonight because... There we go. Oh, well, you know what messes me up geography wise? I have a sister that moved to Indianapolis. And the fact that she's like an hour to an hour and a half away from Chicago and Cincinnati and Detroit and Louisville. And like she's closer to like five other states than I am to Miami, which is also in Florida. Like just can't my brain can't reconcile that. And granted, Will, I'm giving you a hard time. I will be completely honest. Growing up in 20 minutes outside New York, I never realized how close Philadelphia was until I met Amber and she was living in Philadelphia. And I was like, oh, this is going to be impossible to make this work. And then the first time I drove down, it's like, oh, that was like 
between 90 minutes and two hours, that's not all that bad. I thought it was much further. No, the first time you drive down, it's like, what do I do when I get out of Jersey? Nothing. You're there. Pretty much. (laughs) I just got got back from uh, Orlando last week for a conference. You were in my neighborhood. Yeah. You know, uh, the annual conference that I go to for uh, arts organizations that is sponsored by the software we all use. I was down for a few days and came back just in time to record episode 100. Now here we are at 101. Very nice. But yeah, you get out of the Northeast and like nothing is close to anything. Like I am not far from Atlanta, but it's still a three hour drive. I am not far from Birmingham, but that's still two hours. I'm not far from Nashville, but that's still two hours. Like there is no like just crossing the bridge into Philadelphia. All right. I have an Alabama question for you. Maybe this sure segue for uh, Matt as well. If your name, if someone in Alabama's name was James Robinson, would would they just be called Jim Bob? Jim Bob. Uh Jimmy, maybe? Jim, hmm, possibly. We don't we actually don't have too many Jim Bobs. That is an excellent segue because what Josh is bringing to us tonight are three Batman stories by James Robinson, one of the great comic book writers of the 90s. We're starting with I Am a Gun. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, annual number seven. The writer is James Robinson with art by Steve Yowell and Russ Heath, colors by Digital Chameleon, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim. The cover date is November of 1997. A man falls from an antique biplane right into the boardroom of Wayne Enterprises. Batman goes undercover at an air show to discover the killer and learns much more about one of the world's oldest heroic legacies. So is this one of the deals where all of the annuals had a theme? Yes, indeed. The 1997 annuals were pulp heroes. All the stories had some pulpy thing, either a war story or a crime story or a weird science fiction angle or a a sword and sandals kind of deal. Yeah, there were different, like, this is a My Greatest Adventure. And some of them were like pirates. This one was like World War One with biplanes. There was like a a Burroughs style, like Lost World one. The Azrael one was a P.I. shtick. The Batman one was, pardon the expression, but I'm going with the period of the Oriental mystery kind of deal. Hitman, I remember, was a Western. Yeah, there were Westerns. Impulse was a Western. Uh, Shadow of the Bat was also a hard-boiled detective one. One of the other appearances of Joe Potato that is waiting for, for that request at some point. Joe Potato! Yep. So this was one of the war stories. Oh, um, th- romance, too. Starman was a romance. And they all had those great like pulp novel painted covers. The covers... I think the guy who did the covers for these went on to do covers for the hard case crime novels, which are all novels either written in the style of pulps or rediscovered pulp novels from 
major writers that have been out of print forever, which is a really neat series of books if you get the chance to track some of them down. I mean, Stephen King has written a couple in there. Uh, oh, yeah. I read one of those. It was really good until the end where it did it, it totally the fucking cringed out and fell off a cliff for me at the end. I love Stephen they got King, a they but... got a comics line that's not bad. Yes, yes, I've read a few of those too. Peepland uh, and oh, I can't remember the other one. Gun yeah. Honey. Yes, that's one. Because yeah, I mean, this cover was Gary Gianni. These are all they're really, really gorgeous covers throughout. Yeah, Young Romance, the Romance ones had that banner. They did the themes for, you know, a number of years. Um, you know, there was the year ones, which were good. The Elseworlds. Legends of the Dead Earth, I think, is one that I like because I have fond memories, but probably wasn't good. Because it started out being actual more traditional crossovers. It was Armageddon 2001. Armageddon. That was the first. Then Eclipso, The Darkness Within. Those are some good ones. Yes. Oh, uh, Bloodlines, where they introduced a whole bunch of characters who never really appeared anywhere else except for Hitman and a few how, others. How dare you besmirch the good name of the Cyber Rats? <laughs> I was about to say, oh, the Cyber Rats and Joe Public and Battalion. Then it's Elseworlds. Then it's Year One. Then Legends of the Dead Earth. And then Pulp Heroes. But yes, the actual comic that we are here to discuss. <laughs> James Robinson has a lot of Batman in his bibliography, aside from what we're covering this episode. We've only covered one Robinson story before, and it's My Beloved Blades. But there's other stuff, but he's probably best known for Starman, which is one of the top... Definitely five, if not top three, 90s DC. Creator comes on a book, does the story, tells his story, and then is done books. 80 issues plus some annuals and one shots. But who boy is Starman good. But throughout, he did a handful of Legends of the Dark Knight arcs. One with a one shot with Dan Barretton that we'll have to get to someday, Will. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll get to it all someday. But Robinson is deeply enamored with the history of the DC universe and the history of DC comics. And that comes very much through here, but in that way that you don't necessarily need to know it. But if you recognize the characters, it makes the reading experience a little bit deeper because all of the characters that he talks about within the Savage family are existing DC characters from war comics and Western comics. Because he did not create our main character who sort of this whole thing circles around Steve Savage was Balloon Buster, who was a World War I comics hero. His father, Brian Savage, was the unfortunately named Scalp Hunter. And Yikes. his... Yeah, and as that's a character that hasn't reappeared since Starman, he hasn't gotten the unappropriated, uncomfortable name like Grey Crow over in the X-Men who had that same unfortunate sobriquet. And his father, Matthew Savage, who's mentioned, was Matthew Savage, frontier cattle driver or something. 
but each of them were separate characters that over the years were connected in a lineage. And Robinson brought that lineage into Starman because this is set in Turk County, which is where Opal City, the city that Starman takes place in, is. And Brian Savage, Steve's father, is a reincarnated hero who his most recent incarnation is Matt O'Dare, one of the main supporting characters in Starman. So this is tangentially on the outside of Starman, which I mentioned only because I'm a big Starman nerd as it's one of my favorite books. It has the shade. I love the shade. I wish there was some more stories with shade and the Batman because I think they would work really well off each other. They've appeared in a couple of stories together since Robinson reinvented the character, but never in a real major interaction. But again, we're sort of talking about the world around the comic, but not talking about the comic itself. So first impression for me, the Yoel art is interesting. Really long proportions, long legs, long arms, long faces, long fingers. He's got in a number of scenes like the characters and like Batman is in these really like interesting positions when he's sitting down to kind of make this body fold and fit into like a regularly proportioned background and really smooth faces in terms of 90s ultra cross hatching where everyone looks older than they are because of you know the Jim Lee effect like no wrinkles no cross hatching and so all the characters look really young. Yoel is as is Robinson is British and I feel like this style comes from that and hasn't quite been infected might not be the right word but as influenced by the american as you say the jim lee-ness of things if anything i would say it's ahead of its time i would say that you know you probably start seeing more artists similar to this in the mid to late 2000s but for the 90s it is very much not house but i think they were getting a lot of artists like that for these pulp ones because of the whole concept behind it yeah, this is more in line with your Chris Samneys than I your... was just about to say that is very reminiscent of his style. Yaul came over and some of his more significant work is with Grant Morrison. He did the first arc on The Invisibles. He did Sebastian O. He did Scroll Kill Crew. That tracks because Amy looks like straight out of Invisibles. Yeah. And I think if memory serves, we've seen one y'all before because he did the art on uh, the Mark Miller Christmas story on Favorite Things Hmm. back when Miller and Morrison didn't hate each other's guts. They got beef? Oh, yeah. They started out. Morrison was Miller's mentor. Miller's earliest work is co-written stuff with Morrison, a run on Swamp Thing, some Justice League, Aztec, The Ultimate Man. Somewhere there was a significant falling out. They don't talk. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain it more more or less has to do with Morrison feeling like Miller is a complete sellout. Yeah, I, I, I think the general consensus on him at this point is that he is a hack. Yeah, that he writes comics so he can sell them to Netflix. Did it come before, did the fallout come before or after Super Gods was published? 
because Morrison talks a lot about him in Super Gods, and I don't remember it being disparaging, but it is critical. You know, there's a lot of like Miller of this time and, you know, the problematics of like early 2000 comics and Miller being a part of it. Did it come after that as a result of that? Apparently, a quick cursory Google search, there's some contention that Morrison did some ghostwriting and gave some ideas to Miller that Miller didn't credit. And so that's where things started and it just fell apart from there. More recently, within the past year, the quote in an interview, uh, he still lives in Glasgow. Is there a chance of bumping into him? Morrison's response is, there's a very good chance of running into him. And I hope I'm going 100 miles an hour when it happens. God damn. Yeah. So serious. I knew there was serious beef. That's like, that's like X partner level beef that's oh boy i got two xys and i still might not say uh that about one of them <laughs> god damn it was a very ugly thing apparently but there is more to this comic this was not one oh. of those comics where we where we're talking around it because there's not that much there it's just there's a lot of interesting stuff no. about the other things going on here so, i'll uh, say this to jump in i thought this comic was strongest when it was leaning into the war flashback, everything else seemed either a filler or too weak to support any kind of narrative. Like we mentioned Amy earlier. Amy is nothing but a damsel in distress. Like she is just a placeholder. It is shockingly, shockingly thin when it comes to other characters. Okay. Well, my biggest complaint about this book is that there are only two female characters. One of them is a horny, drunk damsel in distress, and the other is a sexy corpse. So there is sexy corpse alert in here, for sure. And frankly, all the characters in the main Batman narrative are seriously underdeveloped. I'm fairly certain our killer gets three lines before he's revealed to be the killer, if that. Possibly less. It's interesting if you're looking at this as a take on Bruce Wayne, because there's things I like about it in the kind of retroing, but then there's things that just don't fit in terms of hitting your tropes and beats for a pulp story. So, for example, being clumsy, getting caught off guard, you know, didn't see, you know, should have been better, you know, when he he shouldn't get taken out by this guy at the airfield. Like he shouldn't get sucker hit, you know, caught blind by him. But those are, those are your tropes in like a pulp story. I do love, I love the idea of Bruce Wayne reading books. There's a library scene in the first um, Batman and Son animated movie where him and uh, Damien are in the library and they're talking about reading books. And it always felt so right for me. Like this is a part of the character. Like it's not exciting in a comic book, but it absolutely should be a thing. And um, I think of in Jimmy Carter's White House Diary, he talks about how when he became president, he wanted to be able to read everything that came across his desk. And they all told him like that shit's impossible. Like there's too much stuff. So he hired for like the first year he was president, he hired the best speed reading coach like in the country and took these lessons every day. And when you get like later into it, when he's at like the famous Camp David retreat in 78 with McGinn and Sadat, talks about like, you know, things are getting contentious and they need an afternoon off. So like he went back to the cabin and read two novels. 
that's Bruce Wayne to me. Like, I feel like Bruce Wayne would be like, well, you know, I have all this Batman stuff, but I still need to read. So, you know, I have to be the greatest reader, you know, the greatest detective and the fastest reader. But that he would absolutely like sit back and want real physical books to read. Yeah, he spends enough time looking at computers doing evidence reconstruction. No, the smell and the feel of a book. Absolutely. Alfred would have it no other way. Real books. That library, every book in the Wayne Library has been read, even if he's bought new copies of them unread to replace the red ones so they look like they've never been read. I think that's one of the throwaway lines in the animated movie. Like, I think Damien asked him, like, have you read any of these? And he's like, everyone. The reveal of how Batman figures out who the killer is, is also right out of a pulp or out of the golden age of radio. That one weird little clue that you couldn't pick up that they drop. But that flashback, the middle chapter of this, I agree, it is the strongest, despite the sexy corpsiness of it. And it's intentionally because the artist on it, Russ Heath, is the artist on a lot of the classic DC war comics. He did All-American Men of War and stuff like that. He's a, a local boy to where I grew up. He grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is about 20 minutes from where I grew up, maybe a little bit farther. He's possibly also more famous for doing work that he was never credited for. You know, all those Roy Lichtenstein paintings that were lifts of comic panels? Yeah, a lot of those were Russ Heath's, and Heath was never compensated or never acknowledged by Lichtenstein. I would love the idea, like, just thinking about it now, if the whole Pulp Heroes thing was actually, like, the older guys like Denny O'Neill and Archie Goodwin looking for a way to give, like, all of the old artists from the war and adventure comics who couldn't get work anymore, like to give him a paycheck. I would love that. Annual season, whether they're themed or not, is always going to be, you know, you've got five books that you're like, why the fuck did I pay like $5 for these? And one that is like, oh my God, it's a hidden gem. I can't believe no one else bought this. That's annual season every year. Absolutely. I would have to go back and reread some of these. I remember Hitman being really good. And that just that's Garth Ennis and Carlos Esquera, co-creator of Judge Dredd. I have a distinct memory of the Nightwing one being pretty good. Oh, it was Devin Grayson and this, you know, Greg Land when he, you know, actually drew instead of tracing porn. Those early Greg Land, you know, when he was doing Nightwing, when he was doing Birds of Prey, he he did some good work. Eduardo Barreto on Robin. Javier Solteras on Catwoman. Yeah. Wow, we have not talked much about this the mystery is not all that engaging and the reveal at the end of the treasure of steve savage is actually a fairly clever reversal that it's not the thing you expect it's not what anyone expects it's not gold or anything but it completely works with everything we've seen Oh, one other thing when thinking about that, another character that pops up in the flashback, they talk about Von Hammer 
is Enemy Ace, who was another of the World War One era DC characters. Enemy Ace was the German flying ace who showed up in uh, Batman's Mystery Casebook in that one story. And so he's mentioned here again uh-huh. as well. Because, now, bef- you know, Charlie Fish, another DC history geek. Now, before we get any farther, there is no relation to Vandal Savage here, correct? No. no. Okay. That was bothering me. That's just a last name. You can only have three last names, though. Wayne, Kent, Savage. Everyone is one of the above. Gordon. Unless you go back far enough, the Gordons are actually related to the Kents. So there you know. I should not throw things like that out into the universe. No, you should. Because then it's the thing that everyone says now that, you know, don't mention your comic ideas online because then the writers can never use them. So every time you have a really shitty idea like that, you need to post it on social media. That is a good call. I think they should use Hush regularly. Oh, wait, no, can't do that now. (laughs) This is a perfectly fine little story. Oh, Bruce's alter ego when he goes undercover here. Malone! Yep, Terry Malone. That's a last name that he can recycle all he likes, because that just always feels good. It's, uh, It's matches gone clean. Exactly. Uh, But yeah, I I enjoyed this primarily because if I can't have Nazi killing in a book, I'll settle for killing some Germans during World War One. Proto-Nazi. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The facial expressions we got when he's like, rage. I enjoyed that. Uh, The story as a whole, some tropes, but I I suppose if your mission is to lean into the tropes, you got to excuse that a little bit, but... And that's the whole still tropes. Yeah. I don't know if it's the best, but I think it was the most enjoyable of the three for me tonight that we're going to talk. I about. will agree with that. And I think just judging, I don't know, my first impressions of Robinson as, as a writer reading these three together, this has some but definitely the least of his constant monologuing and explaining and detailing plots. And yeah, so I if I had to pick one, I disliked the least. This is probably it. Robinson oh, is chatty. I will a not. lot of his stuff is very middle of the road. Um, I have a friend who always described him as a very whelming writer. I know there's, I've never read Starman. You know, there's things like that people love. I can tell you that his Wonder Woman run a couple years back got nigh unreadable near the end. Oh, I remember people hated it. (laughs) I was out of the country when it came out, and I absolutely had it already not ended, and I had purchased through and had in a stack waiting for me beyond him, I would have unsubbed and tapped out. He was the wrong writer for that book. He was the wrong writer for that book. I think this is probably a pretty fair spread of Robinson that we're getting today in terms of, you know, we're not highlighting like his best or his worst, but you get a lot of things that leave you feeling like this. I love Starman. Starman is a comic that was kind of written for me. It's deeply entrenched in the history of DC comics. It's a father and son story, which always gets me, you know, right in the feels. Father and son and brothers are central to Starman. Plus it has a Victorian immortal bon vivant 
who sips absinthe and used to hang out with Charles Dickens and Oscar Wilde. I mean, this is a character that was made for Matt. The Shade is one of my, like, definitely 10, if not top five DC Comics characters. Because there's just something so cool about this casual immortal who he's been a villain, he's been a hero. He just sort of, he's the pure definition of true neutral. He goes how he feels at that particular moment. But it's also because it was devised as a single writer project, the characters, Jack Knight, specifically Starman, has a beginning, middle, and end to his journey. His story ends where if you were allowed to for mainstream superhero characters, Wally West's journey would have ended as well. He gets the happy ending. He gets the family which is something that you build throughout the entirety of the series. Because Jack starts out as, you know, he owns a 50s nostalgia shop and he's selling tchotchkes and memorabilia and he wants nothing to do with the legacy of Starman. And over the course of the series, you watch him make peace with his father. You watch him grow into a hero. You watch him grow into a family man. You see, you don't get that in big two books a lot. There are very few big two books that end, that get an ending. Maybe the Linda Danvers Supergirl would be the one that I've read that comes off the top of my head. But there's not a lot. And Jack has appeared a total of once since then. Because the legacy passed to Courtney Whitmore, to Stargirl. And so she got the cosmic staff and Jack rode off into the sunset with Sadie, his girlfriend at the end of the series, And with the son he had with his arch nemesis, the mist and Sadie pregnant with his other child. And you never know what happens. You know that the knights, things happen with the knights. And we saw different generations of them. Thanks to DC 1 million. We saw a a descendant and currently in Jeff Johns, justice society and some of the flash forward stuff to a future justice society, you see Jack's son grown up and taking the Mist's identity, his mother's identity. But Jack himself was just done because his story was done. But that's a lot of talking around this book. Ah, the one other thing that I just, looking at my notes that I I bolded, in that first chapter, when Bruce is looking at stuff about Steve Savage and Von Hammer, He says in one of the the narration bits something about In the Killer Skies, which is a reference to a Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Batman story about Batman and something to do with Enemy Ace called Ghosts of the Killer Skies. Again, Robinson is that kind of nerd. Robinson's the kind of nerd that's like, I pick up all these like weird little things he's throwing in there, which is part of why I love his stuff. Matt throwing up his hands means it's time for Batman Legends of Dark Knight Annual Number 7, a book that you can't find anywhere but on shitty pirate sites on the big board. As we are at episode 101, we've got 300 stories on the big board. Oh, so nice, so clean. Let's fuck it up. Yep. Number one remains the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman Year One down at 50 is a savage innocence 
the issue of the Spectre with the Joker, another one of those 90s series that has a strong beginning, middle, and end, the Ostrander Spectre. Coming in a sexy 69 is Batman Legend of the Dark Knight 16 to 20 Venom. At 100 is Shadow of the Phantasm, the Batman and Robin Adventures Annual that is a sequel to Mask of the Phantasm. 150 is Batman Gates of Gotham. 200 is Batman Overdrive, the all-ages graphic novel. 250 is Batman Holy Terror, a book that desperately needs to be re-ranked. And all the way at the bottom, at 300, it is Curse of the White Knight. Ah, a book that needs no re-ranking because it is terrible. All right, let's start from the idea that this book is perfectly average. So, 150, Gates of Gotham. Gates of Gotham has more to say. Yeah. Okay, here's one thing. And there are questions about when we do some re-ranking about re-ranking this. Blades, which is also a Robinson, is at 187. This is Blades not is better than, than this. Blades is better than this. Right. Exactly. What was 200 again? 200 is Batman Overdrive, the all-ages graphic novel where Bruce is pretty out of character and petulant. We're in the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, you look at after 300 stories, you look at this and it's like some of these are in the right neighborhood, but I think of a little off of exactly where they should be. Like, I think Mad Men Across the Water, which is three slots below Overdrive, is better than Overdrive. It's definitely more fun for us. Right. And I think Detective Comics 824 should be way lower. You and your at Paul this Dini. point yeah exactly you you can't read paul dini without immediately setting it like 15 places below it's not good all right in fact it's... it is bad we did young justice one through six this has to go above that because this only has one sexy corpse whereas that has multiple jesus fucks in it i would but... put this above officer down simply because it's shorter oh that's so good because i would definitely put it below joker's comedy of errors exactly so that puts us in a real tight range perchance is a lot of good to it it's just one of those stories where it's got six ideas three of them are really good three of them are okay to meh and if they just focus on the three really good ideas it would have been a stronger book and would have been higher up but are any of the things in this as good as those three good ideas? No. So that puts it above or below Scoop of the Century, the first Mad Hatter. Which we did last time I was here. Indeed we did. I, I think this actually goes below that because, again, first appearance of the Mad Hatter, first appearance of Vicky Vale. And Vicky Vale has more agency in that story from the 50s than either of the two female characters in this story have. Facts. There's your trump card right there. Yep. So this is the new 209. Uh, It's going to be a ceiling for tonight. I'm not necessarily saying you're wrong, but I think there's there's something to be said at least about the next story. Uh, the, The final one, absolutely. But we'll, we'll we'll get there as we, we move forward. The next story is Face the Face. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 817 to 820, and Batman Volume 1, numbers 651 to 654. The writer is James Robinson, with pencils by Leonard Kirk and Don Kramer, 
inks by Andy Clark, Keith Champagne, Wayne Foucher, and Michael Baer. Colors by John Callis. Letters by Travis Lanham, Pat Brousseau, Phil Balsman, and Jared K. Fletcher. And edited by Michael Siglane and Peter Tomasi. The cover dates are May to August of 2006. Batman has returned to Gotham after a year away. Some things have changed. Some have remained the same. And some have returned to an old status quo. But the murders of some of Gotham's lesser villains are tracing back to the man who protected Gotham in Batman's absence, Harvey Dent. Welcome to One Year Later. Do you have any idea of the context of what's going on here, Will? Well, the flashback that was like six issues in certainly helped. So you're in the same boat as all the new readers were when this first came out. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I I saw on uh, briefly Googling something unrelated that this was after Final Crisis. Infinite or... Crisis. Infinite. Look, DC's uh, had innumerable crises. I don't particularly care which one. So for context. Yes. Infinite Crisis, seven issue series. At the end of issue five, the next month, despite all of DC's books, you know, still running... All the books jumped a year into the future. So a lot of character status quos were different. All these things had changed. And there was zero explanation. Ollie was suddenly the mayor. Batman was returning to Gotham City after a year away. Superman Uh, didn't have his powers. Flash and Wonder Woman didn't have books for a few months. Catwoman was pregnant. All sounds like stuff you really want. Cassandra Cain was very evil. And then it all got explained either in flashbacks like this, six issues in, or um, in the year-long 52 series. Not all of it, though, because there's a lot of the stuff in here that never gets explained. The stuff about Bullock and Gordon and the corruption in Gotham, you can infer that from some of the stuff in 52, but you never see it explained on page. I had to go look it up. It is fucking wild that this came out after Gotham Central because this does not feel like it exists in a timeline after everything we read in Gotham Central. This resets everything. There's one line in here about corruption that goes up to Commissioner Aikens, but you never find out what was going on with that. You assume from the stuff that happens in 52 that intergang and the religion of crime infiltrates Gotham throughout 52. So you assume that they did something, but you never see Bullock's investigation. You never see Gordon get his job back. That is taken on faith because nobody cared because people just wanted Jim Gordon back in the GCPD. And uh, also Batman's got that nice fucking ham fisted section with Bullock right there. It's like, all right, I'm giving you a clean slate from here on kid. And it's also somewhat clear that Robinson didn't read Gotham central because talking about Bullock leaving the forest because he was on the take. It's like, no Bullock was never on the take. No. Bullock bends rules, but Bullock isn't crooked. Yeah. Which is one of the things that you kind of wind up having to blame editorial as much as anything else, because somebody should have pointed out that he left the force because he sold out a rat and got him killed and IA was breathing down his back, not because he was crooked. Throughout this, there are multiple, multiple parts. There's text bubbles pointing to the wrong people. There's 
text editing typos, inconsistencies in art. There's a scene where Bruce is doing gymnastics shirtless and like he dismounts and he's in the full costume. This book feels like someone forgot to edit it. I don't disagree. My supposition on this is as follows. This is eight issues over four months. These are two titles running bi-weekly for four months as an absolute placeholder. This was here because Morrison wasn't ready to take over Batman and Dini wasn't ready to take over Detective. As right after this arc, the Morrison run begins on Batman and the Dini run begins on Detective. This was there to fill space until that and to establish certain points that Jim Gordon was commissioner again, that Bullock was back on the force, that Two-Face was Two-Face again after Hush, because this is the first Two-Face appearance since his face was healed at the end of Hush. This was to get certain ducks in a row for when Morrison and Deanie took over for the actual runs after Infinite Crisis. So the Two-Face, I mean, it's a Two-Face story. It does feel very reverse-engineered. Like, it does very much feel like a, hey, we're coming out of Infinite Crisis, we're moving forward, like, we need Two-Face back on the board, and then you build the story to get there. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of my problems with this one yet. I actually, I think I enjoyed it more the first time I read it. Same. A lot more of the problems stood out to me the second time, when I was taking notes of them as I went. (laughs) I think my primary complaint about this story is that Harvey comes off as such a whiny baby, a murderous whiny baby, but a whiny baby nonetheless. And Matt is like over here losing his shit at this. But he really is. That is, Will, there are some things that are just you. That is just, (laughs) and it's not a complaint. It's not necessarily I'm saying anything's wrong. There are some things that will immediately set you off and a character who is petulant will immediately kill a story for you. And Harvey is absolutely in this. Story. I do not like whiny babies, Matt. It's interesting because you read this and you read the next one that we're going to do. And it's clear that James Robinson thinks very highly of Two-Face. Two-Face is a character he's really into. But he's also not selling him in this as formidable in this either. No, no, no. Like we're led to believe that not only does Batman leave Harvey uh, in charge of Gotham for a whole year, and that Harvey, after a month of training, does the job well. But then when you know some of these D-list rogues start dying off, people just start to suspect Harvey. And instead of Harvey being like, oh, well, that's not me. Let's figure it out. He says, how dare you suspect me? I'm going to I'm going to mess my face up again and start killing people. I'll show you. It's exactly like super villain level thinking here. But it's just so petulant. And no, I was not having any of it. There's also a major contradiction just in the whole setup of it that is kind of infuriating. You're like, for fuck's sake, Bruce, because the whole thing is, you know, okay, I need to take a break from Gotham. You know, I need someone to hold the place and Harvey needs a purpose. So Bruce comes back and it's like, well, fuck Harvey's purpose. Nope, I'm Batman again. 
fuck off. What could, you know, what could possibly go wrong by taking away the only thing that the psycho has been living for for the last year? But we didn't even see that. We didn't even see Batman come to Harvey and say, all right, you can go fuck off. It was just Batman shows up again and Harvey feels like he's been told to fuck off. Bruce does say something to the effect of stand down when he first pops up again, but it's one panel and you don't see Harvey say anything to him either. He comes in as a shadow. All you do is you see the shadow over Harvey's face and the shadow, which is Bruce, goes, it's time to stop, Harvey. It's over. And Harvey's like, but... He goes, you can stand down now, my friend. Your work is over. And over is in bold letters. And the shadow overtakes Harvey's face. And this is one of those classic comic book tropes where everything could have been solved by everyone just having a conversation. But Bruce is not good at conversations, as we see with his interactions with Tim throughout this, which we will get to by the end. I got something to say about that. One of the things that drives me crazy here is when the KGB Beast first appeared in Ten Nights of the Beast, this was a guy so formidable that he was toe-to-toe with Batman and winning. Boy, how the mighty have fallen. My first note is the idea of Two-Face wiping the floor with KGB Beast is a hell of a statement for how formidable you think he is. Right. This is a guy who, I mean, he lost a step in there because he first appears in Ten Nights of the Beast. Then he shows up going pretty evenly with King Snake in Robin 3. And then after that, he's a jobber. Only when Scott Snyder does him in My Own Worst Enemy, another Two-Face story, does he become something formidable again. And then Tom King writes him as kind of formidable, but still pretty much a punk in his run. He's a wildly inconsistently written villain. And this, the thing here with Ventriloquist Arthur sort of goes down like a gitch. <laughs> yes. This has that hush, long Halloween, Jeff Loby sort of vibe, where it's like, hey, let me write all these characters in sort of thing. And it doesn't really work because nobody gets the page space they need. None of the other villains. And it doesn't have the same verve as Long Halloween or Dark Victory or even Hush. Oh, but we learned a lot about uh, Orca and uh, her husband's relationship with her and, and how he liked her gay friends. Okay, for fuck's sake. 2006 Brokeback came out a year earlier like this isn't the 80s in pre-crisis I mean between I have some gay friends so does she and in the same issue like the forehead of an Indian in the Hindu caste system oh that that particular dial it's like I understand that he's what he's doing with those Jason Bard backups is he's really leaning into the like noiry sort of pulpy detective thing But yeah, there's some things that are better not used there. And that, by the way, is the other problem with this. It establishes that Jim and Harvey are back on the force and that Two-Face is Two-Face again. But it sets up a bunch of stuff that nobody ever does anything with. 
Jason Bard is Batman's man in the daylight. It's used very sparingly. Great White Shark as the secret mob boss of Gotham. Barely used. Penguin comes back two issues later in Night of the Penguin. And no mention of Great White Shark there. I loved that as an idea. Warren White running the Gotham's mobs from inside Arkham, playing chess, treating it almost like a mid-level marketing scheme with him as the untouchable head of it. That's a great idea. But why introduce it if no one is ever going to touch it again? Because editorial didn't tell him no? Because editorial didn't tell him that you don't need to put in these big ideas, just do the things that we told you to do. Did this have an editor? Did someone edit this? I think they were too busy working with Morrison and Dini and lining all that up. That That is really what this feels like. Yeah, there's, what is it? I have another note in here. One of the things missed out. This point about um, Two-Face being mad about Batman thinking he's a murderer because, you know, didn't everyone think that he was a murderer not too long ago? So it's like, okay, James Robinson saw that there was a book called Bruce Wayne Murderer, but don't think he actually read it because it wasn't Batman Murderer and Two-Face wouldn't know that that was Batman the way this story was written. We're going to get into the Robin stuff. I don't know. There's a little, you guys haven't done Cataclysm yet. Maybe we need to do that soon, but kind of figuring out, I don't know what the appropriate level of respect for Scarface should be, but um, he is responsible for no man's land. Scarface, again, he's a character who they sort of made a jobber here. And no man's land itself, I think might've been the beginning of that where he's knocked out right away in the first arc. But again, that felt like, okay, we need to set the stakes. Scarface is a pretty threatening foe. He's a major part of the rogues gallery. So yeah, let Batman take him out here. So it's like, okay, this is a threat. Yeah, the Jason Bard, it's really wild reading this after reading Eternal that like these completely different, I mean, the the limp is the only thing they have in common. Yeah, when I saw them bringing Jason Bard into Eternal, I was excited and then I was like, oh, this isn't the character I remember from either Birds of Prey or from here. And that that opening scene with him in this is, um, as as Will used to say, uh, cringy. Cringy? He's not a good guy. And Officer Harper, that is a Robinson thing. Because again, Robinson loves legacy. Robinson loves that whole generational DC thing. So the fact that she is the grandniece of the original Guardian and thus the cousin of Red Arrow? Because Roy is also Guardian's nephew or great-nephew. Oh, yeah. So that makes them probably through other siblings. I doubt she's obviously not Roy's sister. So she's probably Roy's second or third cousin. But again, just something Robinson likes. He likes legacy. He likes to play with that. I mean, that's what Starman's about. That's why he's the guy who brought back the Justice Society. That's exactly the angle he would play. But again, Harper shows up in Robin for a while and... Yeah, no, I mean, irony in the names, but there was definitely vibes here. Like if this was Robinson's ongoing, his first arc in an ongoing, you know, similar to... 
like when Harper Rowe is introduced in um, Snyder's where you're like, okay, it might be in six issues, it might be in 20, but like eventually she's going to put on a costume. You kind of get that vibe with Officer Harper, but, you know, Jim Bob was out in eight issues, so. This was his return to D.C. after spending a few years in Hollywood where it did not go well. He wrote the screenplay for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm. One of numerous screenwriters, so that can't be blamed on any one. He also did a movie that I thought was really fun called Comic Book Villains with Donald Logue. Just trying to make sure there's nothing else before we get into Tim. In the first issue, I like, and the start of the second issue, what the signal means to the people of Gotham, not having seen it for a year. That was definitely one of my kind of high points of this story. Yeah. Maybe it's because I've gotten more used to Jim Gordon in recent years, but Gordon here feels very passive. I'm used to a Gordon who is more than just let's flip on the bat signal and give information to Batman, which granted was what Gordon was for a lot of years. But I wanted, especially when Two-Face is involved, I feel like Jim should be more active. Oh, the um, the Scarecrow scene. Tim sees Superboy Prime and mm-hmm. Bruce sees his dad in the first Batman costume. Yep. Golden Age deep cut. Yep. And it's especially f- funny to read that the week after reading R.I.P. with Dr. Hurt in the same costume. I knew there was no connection there because Robinson couldn't have known what Morrison was up to, but it's one of those coincidental little things that works in retrospect. And now Tim Drake. Oh, Matt, 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 Matt. There are some very good ideas here. His heart was in the right place. And I think, I mean, some of that I think comes from editorial in wanting to, well, no, I can't imagine because why would they go out the rest of, of this story isn't edited? Well, also because I don't know why you'd go out of your way to really strengthen the bond between Bruce and Tim, just as you're about to introduce Damien, unless it's to turn the, twist the knife more when Damien shows up. Some of Tim's, dialogue is off but i think the rapport between him and bruce being stronger after the year away makes sense and bruce trusting tim bruce wanting tim to be his partner i like all of that i like bruce mentioning that like you know the the laws are a little different i can't just you know make you my ward it's not really a thing that we do anymore but every time he calls him boy i don't know if that the term of endearment in England, but the constantly calling him boy was just triggering. Yeah, it's not, it just feels wrong. And I like that Tim throws himself into Bruce's arms and Bruce embraces him. And then it's like, you know, it's okay, boy. I'm like, oh, why did you have to do that? I like the moment when Bruce is trying to, you know, make Tim feel good. And it's like, you know, the closest thing Bruce can come to being, you know, good on you is, yeah, it took me a long time to get over the Scarecrow's fear toxins. You did it already. You know, you could just say, I'm proud of you and I love you. Those work just as well as these sort of weird, awkward compliments. 
I love, and I think it's an inadvertent thing, that like the amalgamation of the history of Bruce Wayne and Batman is that he is so bad at talking to kids, even though he continues to like adopt them. <laughs> like he continues to have so many and like find to take them in, but never learns how to fucking talk to any of them. That's why he has Alfred, because Alfred's the best dad ever. And I think that is something that people should get, they should get over that. And Bruce should be able to talk to these kids because he's been doing this for years. And also I'll just say it because it is never more clear than at any point until a couple of years ago, how with the way Tim reacted to Connor Kent's death, how anyone ever thought Tim was straight is beyond me. Yes, he's his best friend, but you don't attempt to bring your best friend back from the dead as a clone. I would try to bring you back from the dead as a clone, Matt. I appreciate that. But you also wouldn't do it in the same way Tim does, which is so clearly I'm in love with him and I can't bring myself to say it. I love Tim, but this was an unhealthy period for Tim right here. He he was having a lot of trouble. And he's about to almost die in the cave. Yep. Just a a great stretch. By a 10-year-old. Let's not forget, he's nearly killed by a 10-year-old. Pretty badass 10-year-old, though. Yeah, true. Fucking sucks. (laughs) And also, I just gotta point out, this is the first of two stories where someone lets the animals out of the zoo at the Gotham Zoo. We get that in the next story, too. I'm like, really, Robinson? Get that he already used that one before. Like the second time was Kate Kane, not Two Face, but still lets all the animals out of the zoo. All the animals out of the Gotham Zoo, knowing the villains in Gotham, that's probably a weekly to bi-weekly occurrence. Somebody's letting those animals out of the zoo. Oh, and oh, let's not forget Tally Man. Why? And the second one. This is the second Tally Man. But did we get Harry Belafonte inner monologue lyrics um, with the first one? No. And the first one, Two-Face offs him in No Man's Land because he was Two-Face's bailiff. There's definitely a lot in this one of James Robinson didn't read the comics, but maybe he like skimmed the Wikipedia page of the time. Yeah, this was, I haven't been writing for DC for four years I'm back, so let me just dive right in, and nobody gave me that much to work with, so here we go. They sent me the trades. I didn't read them, but I did read the descriptions on the back. Yeah. I think I'm good at this point. I got nothing else to say, so that means it's time to put face the face on the big board. You're right. I am a gun is the ceiling. With the exception of a couple of awkward moments, this does not fall into that, oh, ye gods, this is offensive territory. Yeah. So what's what's at 2.30 right now? At 2.30 right now is You Can't Hide from a Dead Man, Brave and the Bold, Volume 1, Number 86, Bob Haney, Neil Adams, Dead Man in the League of Assassins. Uh, It's below that, but I'd say... Probably above, let's say, Grim Knight at 246. Definitely above Grim Knight. 
235 is leaves of grass for all of its failings this is trying something more than that and while leaves of grass is equally verbose it is much preachier than this leaves of grass only three issues i have trouble putting it above the stuff above that last batgirl story batman noel i mean even if noel's lacking a lot the art is stunning um yes little red book i know i was critical on and Slider had problems, but I, I have more problems with Face the Face. Leaves of Grass is definitely the right cul-de-sac there where they belong together, I think. So below that is Shaman, which is another one from one of your episodes, Josh. That one has, I'm not entirely sure why that one wound up as high as it is and not in the more problematic cul-de-sac because of its somewhat weird portrayals of first new batman book like significance like we gave it a little more benefit of the doubt and hand waved off some of the um racial insensitivity yeah and it denny o'neill clearly was not malicious in any of that it was just I don't think robinson is malicious either no. but i will oh, give them denny has done so much more stuff that i love that he gets He's going to get a pass before Jim Bob does. Okay. Right around 240. The great Joker Clayface feud is a lot of fun. Then you've got Bouncing Baby Boy. And then uh, the original Golden Age Batman of Zoranar story at 242. The original Batman of Zoranar. It's got to go above this. I haven't read it in a minute, but it just feels so much more significant in its own, like, special gem of a way with all the ways it's been brought back. Okay. I'm thinking right below that, because below that is Last Chance, which is, hey, let's tell the entire Dead Man story in one animated series. This is better than The Kingdom Son of the Bat at 244, that Ibn al-Zufash Kingdom Come spinoff. Yeah, let, let's do New 243. Okay, new 243 it is, after Batman of Zero and R, above Last Chance. I'm a little higher on Clash of Symbols than you two. That will I is. I was you. higher on Clash of Symbols. That I, was a compromise spot. <laughs> I, I bought a second copy of it a while ago, and I've had it sitting waiting to be framed. And I um, I do have the double-page splash frame now. Um, double-page splash is, is one of my favorites. I love that. Okay. So our final story of the night is Deface the Face. This is Detective Comics Volume 3, numbers 988 to 993. Written by James Robinson. Art by Steven Segovia and Carmine Di Gian Domenico. Colors by Avin Plazencia and Alan Pasalacqua. Letters by Rob Lee, edited by Dave Wielgoss, Chris Conroy, and Jamie S. Rich. Cover dates are June to December of 2008. What seems just like another random murder in Gotham leads Batman into the middle of something far more. The cult of Cobra is in Gotham, and Two-Face is trying to stop them. Now, Batman must learn why Two-Face is involved and team up with him one more time to save the city. This is around the same era of that Wonder Woman stuff. And this feels a little phoned in. It is the most overwritten of the three, for sure. Yes. Boy, 
howdy is there a lot of narration in here and this is very much of its particular moment as this is one of the books dealing with the fallout of the wedding that didn't happen and Bruce mm-hmm. being all angsty about that. He's normally so good at dealing with his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And right out of the gate, both Bruce and Jim feel really out of character. And even if you can kind of yes. give it to Bruce, Jim feels out of character. He's not as codependent as the Jim Gordon from Harley Quinn, the animated series, but he's definitely in that direction. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I can give pretty much every weird ass version of a Batman character a pass if it's on that show. I just, there's something about the universe it exists in that I'm like, yeah, sure. They could all be completely weird, fucked up versions of these characters I love. And I am good with it. He's partially the voice cast, just does such great work with the dialogue they're given. It is. I don't know that there's any other show, movie, comic that if you do a take that's completely opposite of how, like, I imagine this character, that, like, I can ride with it or appreciate it like I do for so many of them on that show. To face the face, let's start with the art. It's not bad. It's, it's you know, artists who are getting a lot of regular work that we see, talented guys. But with the exception of Two-Face's purples, it's very dark and not in a gritty way, but like the way movies are shot now. So you can't see a fucking thing that's happening. Like the, the scene in the woods in Eternals, like it's dark like that for reasons I don't understand. Yeah. Segovia is an artist who levels up in between here and his work on Hellions. It took me a minute to remember who he was. because When I was looking at this, it was like, oh, this is perfectly meh house style. And I mean, G. Domenico, I've liked his stuff since uh, Battle and Jack Murdoch, the Marvel Knights miniseries he did about Daredevil's dad. But again, you see the knight his stuff levels up by the time of the night. But here, it's just sort of there. And I mean, it could be the colorists. Like, it might not be them, you know, that they're trying to make this high contrast because it, and it's it's the two-faced purples and it's the firefly scenes that are very bright. And everything else is just so overly tinted and shaded. Speaking of wild interpretations outside of the comic and in other media, Bridget Pike, the Lady Firefly, who makes her first comic appearance here. Gotham, right? Yep. Made her one that, um, that that little Catwoman tries to rescue and she gets all burnt and you got the abusive brothers. Yep. This is a character who made their first appearance on Gotham and then came to the comics. Interesting. Because Gotham, that was a thing. We're going to watch that for a bonus episode sometime, Will. We're going to watch a couple episodes of Gotham. And I don't know if I should drop you into the middle seasons, because at least they're batshit crazy and entertaining. That's a show the first season is the sloggiest slog to ever slog. It tries to be a prequel to the Batman you know. And by the end of season one, it gives up and is like, nope, we're just going to fucking detour and do whatever the fuck we want. 
And it, the wilder it gets, the better it gets. It is completely fucking insane by the end. And I'm like, okay, they're doing No Man's Land and Bruce Wayne is like 15. Okay. Uh, well, first, I want uh, I want Pee Wee Herman. Second, uh, uh, we could uh, also do whatever that stupid show was. Pennyworth, the origin of Batman's butler, whatever the hell that was. Hey, but you know what? The one thing I will absolutely always give credit to Gotham for, the only time they have ever actually had an ethnically appropriate racial ghoul. It is the only time where Rachel Ghoul is someone yeah. yeah, of non-Caucasian descent. Finally, someone realized, oh right, Rachel Ghoul's not a white guy. Yeah. But to face the face. It's so much easier to talk about things other than this comic. Yeah, because there's for all of the talk, there's very little here. How do you feel about Batman um, going out with Harvey as his sidekick and letting him bring guns? I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't like telling Harvey, oh, uh, no killing, but yeah, the guns are fine. What the fuck are you even doing here? Guns are a lethal weapon. You do not point a gun at someone unless you are shooting to kill. But again, credit. Robinson remembered Duke Thomas exists, which is more than a lot of writers have. What a fascinating moment in the in the Batman universe this is. This is right after he gets his heart broken, so he's he's a bit mopey about that. And we're still trying to make Duke Thomas work at this point. It's just a just a fascinating little nexus. It's also interesting. I think he likes it because it's the exact same thing he was trying to use Jason Bard for in face-to-face that actually exists but as duke thomas as signal at this point in time um so i think it just kind of worked in his favor yeah when i was reading the jason Barr stuff i was like he was trying to set this up the thing they did with duke and then when duke shows up here i'm like ah see robinson was like well i guess it didn't work when i did it but let me see if i can use scott snyder's version of it it should have worked this time but i feel like they didn't stick i mean they stuck with it longer than jason bard but it baffled me that, like, the original, like, the 90s Azrael and Steel series went on for, like, 100 fucking issues. And, like, we can't get, like, Duke Thomas anywhere since we are Robin. Even if they did a freaking Outsider series. He's been, you know, in Urban Legends with Metamorpho and Black Lightning and Katana. That concept they did in the last Outsiders series where it was those four and then a rotating fifth seat for other heroes who needed help on a case. That's a good concept. There's an ongoing right there that should work. Why aren't you doing it? But here, here's a, a moment that I'm just curious about. Robinson is a noted like nostalgia buff. Like That's why... Jack Knight owned a shop that sold 50s memorabilia. Do either of you have any idea who William Bendix is? No. Can't say I do. Because there's that moment where they're looking at the photos, Batman and Alfred, of our dead man. And Alfred says he resembles William Bendix. That is the most obscure friggin' reference. And the only reason I know who he is 
is because aside from being an, a, a screen actor, he also starred in a radio sitcom called The Life of Riley that I've heard various episodes of in my trips through old time radio. But no one reading this comic knows who that is, James Robinson. Why are you making reference to an obscure 1950s actor when there are any number of simian-looking actors who people would be more familiar with? Yes, it's Alfred, the old stage actor, making the reference. But still, I don't know who Bruce would know who that is. So why is Alfred saying that? Hey, let's be clear. Academy Award-nominated actor William Bendix. Ooh. Now I got, now you had my attention, but now you have my curiosity. So let's get to the the heart of what he's doing with Two-Face here. Harvey kills someone, not Two-Face, Harvey. Two-Face can't handle that because if Harvey is bad, what the fuck is he? Interesting concept. Absolutely. So Two-Face creates a Rube Goldberg machine of fucking cover-up to kill a second time, which tracks for Two-Face, the guy that Harvey killed, and then hire two Fireflies and two Tweedles to cover things up. And honestly, I like the pathos of the Firefly. I thought that was one of the higher points of this. And, you know, ultimately he winds up confessing all of this to Bruce and Jim because, you know, he couldn't let anyone find out that Harvey was bad, which no one other than these two people you're confessing it to give a fuck. So like, if there's anyone you're hiding it from, like the two people you're, it just felt like that was his way of getting the exposition out was in the most contradictory way to what he was saying. And then in the end, it's all part of an elaborate play for Two-Face to try to get in good with Leviathan. Which, again, Um, is another one of these, like, okay, this is so of its moment. Bruce is angsty about Selena, and Leviathan is on the rise. Because DC was over-promoting anything that Bendis was doing those first six months. And there's a line early on when Harvey says something about, you know, all of this being Jim Gordon's fault. But no, it wasn't. That never came of anything. Well, then goes and saves Jim Gordon. Right. And then he works with Jim Gordon, and then he, I don't know, like there were some ideas in there, and I think some of it was trying to be clever, but wasn't actually clever. I don't, it could have been more. And Two-Face takes serious umbrage at Gordon calling him Harvey, but Batman continues to call him Harvey through the entire story, and he never says boo about it. And another one, when I mentioned it in the synopsis, but this has a lot to do with the cult of Cobra entering Gotham and fucking around. And they all have, you know, Suicide Squad-esque brain bombs. Gordon is telling Batman about it. There is a bomb inside. Not scanners. I'm sorry. Jim Gordon knows, you know, the big sleep. If you get into the 70s, he's watched The French Connection. Jim Gordon is not a scanners kind of guy. That's because Robinson likes movies and wanted to drop the movie reference in there. And again, I wonder how many people who read this would get that reference. It's also very much propping Two-Face up as an arch foe. It literally calls him an arch foe at one point. It ends on this, like, it's the endless battle. These two will just be fighting forever. 
And I got to be honest, the reason I purchased these originally were just kind of getting more Two-Face stories because Two-Face has never done it for me. I think probably my favorite Two-Face story I've read over the last couple of years when I've tried is Batman 89. But this, it doesn't. It almost, if anything, it just, it makes me feel more like it's a stupid comp. But the Airman Quantumania where Modoc's dying and he's like, at least I died in Avenger. And they're like, okay, sure. Like, you know, but I'm Batman's arch foe. Sure you are. Okay. Yep. Good. <laughs> okay. Do me a favor. When you, and we're, we're going to cover this someday, but it is another one of those stories that is not readily available anywhere right now. Batman Annual 14, Eye of the Beholder. Post, On my list. Yeah, it's the post-crisis origin of Two-Face. Long Halloween draws a lot from it in how it sets up Harvey, but it is one of the best Two-Face stories of all time. But again, I also haven't read it in, you know, a couple decades, but I remember it being really good. Chris Bruce art early in his career. I love a good wheels within wheels sort of story, but this feels like needlessly complicated. Mm -hmm. This is just, everyone seems to have these Machiavellian plans that could have just been way slimmed down. If Cobra was doing this whole mind control drug in the sewers thing, they're in the sewers. Why did they need to distract Batman? If they had just been quiet about things, they could have put their mind control drug in the water and not drawn any attention to themselves. Why the elaborate plan? I mean, yes, this is a comic book. These are supervillains. And did we really need the entire history of the cult of Cobra laid out over the course of an entire issue? That wasn't necessary. They're an evil snake cult. That's all you needed to know. They're an evil snake cult that fights Checkmate and the Outsiders. Actually, I have fonder memories of them from the uh, the Mark Wade Flash run, and I yes. thought less of them after reading the extra exposition in here. Yeah. You undersold them. You you downsold them. Terminal Velocity is the best Cobra story ever. Yeah. We also didn't need most of the final issue, which was just, you know, a big old set piece and Harvey's fake death. This was three issues padded out to six. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about now, right. That, I wonder if that's editorial. He turned, you know, they're like, do you have a script? And he's like, yeah, I got a, you know, a two or three parter. And they're like, yeah, we actually have a six month gap. We need to, fill, or, you know, oh, actually this one's double shipping. So can we need, we need a, 132 pages. This is another one. This is space filler. This is the tiny and run on detective ended. They did the Brian Edward Hill arc that would launch Batman and the Outsiders. Then it's like, ah, oh, crap, Pete Tomasi can't come on for another three months. Uh, James Robinson, give us six issues. And it felt uh, like the time okay. ended a little abruptly because of the way that they were 
made that decision to end King at 84 instead of 100 and Tanyan would take over immediately and um, he could slide his projects over. But then what are you doing with tech? And why precisely did Cobra attack the GCPD? Because it wasn't part of their like night of five assaults. It was just like raiding the GCPD for no reason other than to get attention. There's a lot for <laughs> all the gym. Right. Well, yeah. For all of Even the though exp- that didn't make sense either. No. For all of the exposition in this story, there's a lot that's just like here. And I know eventually Peter Tomasi will do a whole bit in his run on Detective about how all of the stuff that's been going on with Harvey for quite a while has to do with the bullet lodged in his brain at the end of Tomasi's arc on Batman and so that this is kind of retconned with that, but that was obviously not what was had in mind for this. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that doesn't add up or make sense. It's it's a thing. In one casual mention of one of my favorite concepts that has been completely forgotten, the broker, the real estate agent to Gotham's supervillain set. I thought that was such a great idea. It was a Dini idea. He used him briefly in Streets of Gotham, and then that character was just forgot. At least somebody remembered the broker exists. I thought that was that was neat, and, and of course this uh, this twist guy conveniently is Harvey's last case as district attorney before Maroney. Of course, how many last cases has Harvey had? Do you think over the years? Oh, at least a dozen. Poor Jim here. Bruce keeps doing the, uh, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going on. Gordon be like, well, can you tell me, please? Please. Over and over again throughout this story. You're usually so forthcoming with information. <laughs> that was a good line. I mean, okay, he has this thing with Two-Face where Two-Face is like, yeah, my connections with the number two are kind of weak here. I'm not fe- really feeling it. And it's like... Is that really more commentary on just how Robinson was feeling about the story overall? That's one of those, let me hand wave this and hopefully people will think it's funny and not lazy. And usually when people do that, it's lazy. My final thought is that it's very strange to bring a guy in to follow up, not if in narrative, but in tone and in title from a story that's maybe not all that well-cherished to do it again, right? There are obvious connections between face-to-face and de-face-to-face. There are two fill-in runs. You could have gotten somebody else, maybe. But anyway, it's time to put de-face-to-face on the big board. Above or below face-to-face? Below. Face-to-face is at least trying something it does actually have some maybe not ramifications but it is establishing a status quo this is an utterly forgettable story nothing that happens here has any resonance anywhere and while it's two issues shorter it reads like it's four issues longer ouch batman also serves no purpose doesn't I think it is at least more readable than Spawn Batman. That book is just a mess. Yeah. If you had gone lower, I would say it's definitely more readable than The Arrow and the Bat, which we did. 
So no, we I, go I, up and spawn Batman. I'll narrow you in real quick. It's not as good as Robin the Boy Wonder from Detective Comics 38. No, it's not. I think it might go right above Spawn Batman. Maybe one above, because it's not as good as Robin the Boy Wonder. It's not as good as the first appearance of Poison Ivy below that. It's. I don't think it's as good as the first version of the Monk story. The next one is Clash of the Cape and of Cape and Cowl. Batman slapping Robin meme comes from that issue. <laughs> uh, I'll put. I'll. Uh, I'll put it below that. Okay. Two sixty nine. Oh boy. Well, that that does it for tonight. Josh, thanks for being on the show. Where can people find you online if you so wish to be found at this point in the hellscape that is social media? I, I honestly try to avoid them so much. Uh, you could probably still find me at Asleep at the Wheel on the hellscape formerly known as Twitter. Well, Josh, you're always welcome. And thank you as ever for both coming on the show and for your support. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. That's it for this week. Next week, longtime backer John Wickham has upgraded his membership to the Dick Grayson tier. So John is joining us to talk three stories about politics in and around Gotham. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jen, come on. Our very own Josh Wheel. Hey, that guy. Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and our new buddy Matt McThorne for their support. McThorny! You can follow this podcast on Twitter, as we will continue to call it at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will. You can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLives1013, and I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of New Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>